Chapter Six, Parts One to Five of The Passionate Friends by H. G. Wells. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Peter Eastman. Chapter the Sixth, Lady Mary Justin. One. I did not see Lady Mary Justin for nearly seven months after my return to England. Of course, I had known that a meeting was inevitable, and I had taken that very carefully into consideration before I decided to leave South Africa. But many things had happened to me during those crowded years, so that it seemed possible that that former magic would no longer sway and distress me. Not only had new imaginative interests taken hold of me, but I had parted from adolescence. I was a man. I had been through a great war, seen death abundantly, seen hardship and passion, and known hunger and shame and desire. A hundred disillusioning revelations of the quality of life had come to me. Once, for example, when we were taking some people to the concentration camps, it had been necessary to assist at the premature birth of a child by the wayside, a startlingly gory and agonizing business for a young man to deal with. Heavens, how it shocked me! I could give a score of such grim pictures, and queer pictures. And it wasn't only the earthlier aspects of the life about me, but also of the life within me that I had been discovering. The first wonder and innocence, the worshipping dawn-clear passion of youth, had gone out of me forever. 2. We met at a dinner. It was at a house the Tarfrills had taken for the season in Mayfair. The drawing-room was a big white square apartment, with several big pictures, and a pane of plate-glass above the fireplace in the position in which one usually finds a mirror. This showed another room beyond, containing an exceptionally large, gloriously colored portrait in pastel, larger than I had ever thought pastels could be. Except for the pictures, both rooms were almost colorless. It was a brilliant dinner, with a predominating note of ruby. Three of the women wore ruby velvet, and Ellerslie was present, just back from Arabia, and Ethel Manton, Lady Hendon, and the Duchess of Clines. I was greeted by Lady Tarfrill, spoke to Ellerslie and Lady Hendon, and then discovered a lady in a dress of blue and pearls, standing quite still under a picture in the opposite corner of the room, and regarding me attentively. It was Mary. Some man was beside her, a tall gray man with a broad crimson ribbon, and I think he must have spoken of me to her. It was as if she had just turned to look at me. Constantly during those intervening months I had been thinking of meeting her. Nonetheless there was a shock, not so much of surprise as of deferred anticipation. There she stood, like something amazingly forgotten, that was now amazingly recalled. She struck me in that brief, crowded instant of recognition as being exactly the person she had been, 
when we had made love in Burnmore Park. There were her eyes, at once frank and sidelong, the old familiar sweep of her hair, the old familiar tilt of the chin, the faint humor of her lip, and at the same time she seemed to be something altogether different from the memories I had cherished. She was something graver, something inherently more splendid than they had recorded. Her face lit now with recognition. I went across to her at once, with some dull obviousness upon my lips. "'And so you are back from Africa at last,' she said, still unsmiling. "'I saw about you in the papers. You had a good time.' "'I had great good luck,' I replied. "'I never dreamt when we were boy and girl together that you would make a soldier.' I think I said that luck made soldiers. Then I think we found a difficulty in going on with our talk, and began a dull little argument that would have been stupidly egotistical on my part if it hadn't been so obviously merely clumsy about luck making soldiers or only finding them out. I saw that she had not intended to convey any doubt of my military capacity, but only of that natural insensitiveness which is supposed to be needed in a soldier. But our minds were remote from the words upon our lips. We were like aphasics who say one thing while they intend something altogether different. The impulse that had brought me across to her had brought me up to a wall of impossible utterances. It was with a real quality of rescue that our hostess came between us, to tell us our partners at the dinner-table, and to introduce me to mine. "'You shall have him again on your other side,' she said to Lady Mary, with a charming smile for me, treating me as if I was a lion in request, instead of the mere outsider I was. We talked very little at dinner. Both of us, I think, were quite unequal to the occasion. Whatever meetings we had imagined, certainly neither of us had thought of this very possible encounter, a long disconcerting hour side by side. I began to remember old happenings with an astonishing vividness. There, within six inches of me, was the hand I had kissed. Her voice was the same to its lightest shade. Her hair flowed off her forehead with the same amazingly familiar wave. Was she, too, remembering? But I, perhaps, had changed altogether. "'Why did you go away as you did?' she asked abruptly, when for a moment we were isolated conversationally. "'Why did you never write?' She had still that phantom lisp. What else could I do?" She turned away from me, and answered the man on her left who had just addressed her. When the mid-dinner change came, we talked a little about indifferent things, making a stiff conversation like a bridge over a torrent of unspoken intimacies. We discussed something, I think Lady Tarville's flowers, and the Cape Flora and gardens. She told me she had a Japanese garden, with three Japanese gardeners. They were wonderful little men to watch. 
hummingbird gardeners, she called them. They wear their native costume. We are your neighbors in Surrey, she said, going off abruptly from that. We are quite near to your father. She paused, with that characteristic effect of deliberation in her closed lips. Then she added, I can see the trees behind your father's house from the window of my room. Yes, I said, you take all our southward skyline. She turned her face to me, with the manner of a great lady adding a new acquaintance to her collection. But her eyes met mine very steadily and intimately. Mr. Stratton, she said. It was the first time in her life she had called me that. When we come back to Surrey, I want you to come and see me and tell me of all the things you are going to do. Will you? 3. That meeting, that revival, must have been late in November or early in December. Already by that time I had met your mother. I write to you, little son, not to you as you are now, but to the man you are some day to be. I write to understand myself, and so far as I can understand, to make you understand. So that I want you to go back with me for a time into the days before your birth, to think not of that dear spirit of love who broods over you three children, that wise, sure mother who rules your life, but of a young and slender girl, Rachel Moore, younger then than you will be when at last the story comes into your hands. For unless you think of her as being a girl, if you let your present knowledge of her fill out this part of our story, you will fail to understand the proportions of these two in my life. So I shall write of her here as Rachel Moore, as if she were someone as completely dissociated from yourself as Lady Mary, as if she were someone in the story of my life who had as little to do with yours. I had met her in September. The house my father lived in is about twelve miles away from your mother's home at Ridinghanger, and I was taken over by Percy Restall in his motor-car. Restall had just become a convert to this new mode of locomotion, and he was very active, with a huge, malignant-looking French car that opened behind, and had a kind of poke-bonnet, and all sorts of features that have since disappeared from the automobile world. He took everyone that he could lay hands upon for rides. He called it extending their range, and he called upon everyone else to show off the car. He was responsible for more introduction and social admixture in that part of Surrey than had occurred during the previous century. We punctured in the riding-hanger drive, Restall did his own repairs, and so it was we stayed for nearly four hours, and instead of a mere caller I became a familiar friend of the family. Your mother, then, was still not eighteen, a soft white slip of a being, tall, slender, brown-haired and silent, with very still deep dark eyes. She and your three aunts formed a very gracious group of young women indeed, Alice then as now the most assertive, with a gay initiative and a fluent tongue, Molly already a sun-brown gypsy, and Nora still a pigtailed thing, 
of lank legs and wild embraces, and the pinkest of swift pink blushes. Your Uncle Sidney, with his shy lank moodiness, acted the brotherly part of a foil. There were several stray visitors, young men and maidens. There were always stray visitors in those days at Ridinghanger. And your grandmother, rosy and bright-eyed, maintained a gentle flow of creature comforts and kindly but humorous observations. I do not remember your grandfather on this occasion. Probably he wasn't there. There was tea, and we played tennis, and walked about, and occasionally visited Restel, who was getting dirtier and dirtier, and crosser and crosser at his repairs, and spreading a continually more remarkable assemblage of parts and instruments over the grass about him. He looked at last more like a pitch in the Caledonian market than a decent country gentleman paying an afternoon call. And then back to more tennis and more talk. We fell into a discussion of tariff reform as we sat taking tea. Two of the visitor youths were strongly infected by the new teachings, which were overshadowing the outlook of British imperialism. Some mean phrase about not conquering Africa for the German bagman, some ugly turn of thought that at a touch brought down empire to the level of a tradesman's advantage, fell from one of them, and stirred me to sudden indignation. I began to talk of things that had been gathering in my mind for some time. I do not know what I said. It was in the vein of my father's talk, no doubt. But I think that for once I may have been eloquent. And in the midst of my demand for ideals in politics that were wider and deeper than artful buying and selling, that looked beyond a vulgar aggression and a churl's dread and hatred of foreign things, while well, I struggled to say how great and noble a thing empire might be, I saw Rachel's face. This, it was manifest, was a new kind of talk to her. Her dark eyes were alight with a beautiful enthusiasm for what I was trying to say. And for what, in the light of that glowing reception, I seemed to be. I felt that queer shame one feels when one is taken suddenly at the full value of one's utmost expressions. I felt as though I had cheated her, was passing myself off for something as great and splendid as the empire of my dreams. It is hard to dissociate oneself from the fine things to which one aspires. I stopped almost abruptly. Dumbly, her eyes bade me go on, but when I spoke again it was at a lower level. That look in Rachel's eyes remained with me. My mind had flashed very rapidly from the realization of its significance to the thought that if one could be sure of that, then indeed one could pitch oneself high. Rachel, I felt, had something for me that I needed profoundly, without ever having known before that I needed it. She had the supreme gifts of belief and devotion. In that instant's gleam, it seemed she held them out to me. Never before in my life had it seemed credible to me that anyone could give me that, 
or that I could hope for such a gift of support and sacrifice. Love, as I had known it, had been a community and an alliance, a frank, abundant meeting. But this was another kind of love, that shone for an instant and promised, and vanished shyly out of sight as I and Rachel looked at one another. Some interruption occurred. Restel came, I think, blackened by progress, to drink a cup of tea and negotiate the loan of a kitchen skewer. A kitchen skewer, it appeared, was all that was needed to complete his reconstruction in the avenue. Nora darted off for a kitchen skewer, while Restel drank. And then there was a drift to tennis, and Rachel and I were partners. All this time I was in a state of startled attention towards her, full of this astounding impression that something wonderful and unprecedented had flowed out from her towards my life, full too of doubts now whether that shining response had ever occurred, whether some trick of light and my brain had not deceived me. I wanted tremendously to talk to her, and did not know how to begin in any serious fashion. Beyond everything, I wanted to see again that deep onset of belief. "'Come again,' said your grandmother to me, "'come again,' after she had tried in vain to make Restel stay for an informal supper. I was all for staying, but Restel said darkly, "'There are the lamps.' "'But they will be all right,' said Mrs. Moore. "'I can't trust them said Restel, with a deepening gloom. Not after that! The motor-car looked self-conscious and uncomfortable, but said nothing by way of excuse, and Restel took me off in it, like one whose sun has set forever. I wouldn't be surprised, said Restel, as we went down the drive, if the damn thing turned a somersault. It might do... anything. Those were the brighter days of motoring. The next time I went over released from Restel's limitations, and stayed to a jolly family supper. I found remarkably few obstacles in my way to a better acquaintance with Rachel. You see, I was an entirely eligible and desirable young man in Mrs. Moore's eyes. 4. When I recall these long-past emotions again, I am struck by the profound essential difference between my feelings for your mother and for Mary. They were so different that it seems scarcely rational to me that they should be called by the same name. Yet each was love, profoundly deep and sincere. The contrast lies, I think, in our relative ages and our relative maturity. That altered the quality of all our emotions. The one was the love of a man of six and twenty, exceptionally seasoned and experienced and responsible for his years, for a girl still at school, a girl attractively beautiful, mysterious and unknown to him. The other was the love of coevals, who had been playmates and intimate companions, and of whom the woman was certainly as capable and willful as the man. Now it is exceptional for men to love women of their own age, 
it is the commoner thing that they should love maidens younger and often much younger than themselves. This is true more particularly of our own class. The masculine thirties and forties marry the feminine twenties. All the prevailing sentiment and usage between the sexes rises naturally out of that. We treat the seniority as though it were a virile characteristic. We treat the man as though he were a natural senior. We expect a weakness, a timid deference in the girl. I and Mary had loved one another as two rivers run together on the way to the sea. We had grown up side by side to the moment when we kissed. But I sought your mother. I watched her and desired her and chose her, very tenderly and worshipfully indeed, to be mine. I do not remember that there was any corresponding intention in my mind to be hers. I do not think that that idea came in at all. She was something to be won, something playing an inferior and retreating part. And I was artificial in all my attitudes to her. I thought of what would interest her, what would please her. I knew from the outset that what she saw in me to rouse that deep shy glow of exultation in her face was illusion, illusion it was my business to sustain. And so I won her, and long years had to pass, years of secret loneliness and hidden feelings, of preposterous pretenses and covert perplexities, before we escaped from that crippling tradition of inequality and looked into one another's eyes with understanding and forgiveness, a woman and a man. I made no great secret of the interest and attraction I found in Rachel, and the Moors made none of their entire approval of me. I walked over on the second occasion, and Ridinghanger opened out, a great flower of genial appreciation that I came alone, hiding nothing of its dawning perception that it was Rachel in particular I came to see. Your grandmother's matchmaking was as honest as the day. There was the same salad of family and visitors as on the former afternoon, and this time I met Freshman, who was destined to marry Alice. There was tea, tennis, and by your grandmother's suggestion, a walk to see the sunset from the crest of the hill. Rachel and I walked across the breezy moorland together, while I talked, and tempted her to talk. What, I wonder, did we talk about? English scenery, I think, and African scenery, and the weald about us, and the long history of the weald, and its present and future, and at last even a little of politics. I had never explored the mind of a girl of seventeen before, there was a surprise in all she knew, and a delight in all she didn't know, and about herself a candor, a fresh simplicity of outlook that was sweeter than the clear air about us, sweeter than sunshine or the rising song of a lark. She believed so gallantly and beautifully, she was so perfectly, unaffectedly, and certainly prepared to be a brave and noble person, if only life would let her and she hadn't as yet any suspicion that life might make that difficult. 
I went to Ridinghanger a number of times in the spring and early summer. I talked a great deal with Rachel, and still I did not make love to her. It was always in my mind that I would make love to her. The heavens and earth and all her family were propitious, glowing golden with consent and approval. I thought she was the most wonderful and beautiful thing in life. And her eyes, the intonation of her voice, her hurrying color, and a hundred little involuntary signs, told me how she quickened at my coming. But there was a shyness. I loved her as one loves and admires a white flower or a beautiful child, some stranger's child. I felt that I might make her afraid of me. I had never before thought that to make love is a coarse thing. But still at high summer, when I met Mary again, no definite thing had been said between myself and Rachel. But we knew, each of us knew, that somewhere in a world less palpable, in fairyland, in dreamland, we had met and made our vows. 5. You see how far my imagination had gone towards readjustment, when Mary returned into my life. You see how strange and distant it was to meet her again, changed completely into the great lady she had intended to be, speaking to me with the restrained and practiced charm of a woman who is young and beautiful and prominent and powerful and secure. There was no immediate sense of shock in that resumption of our broken intercourse. It seemed to me that night simply that something odd and curious had occurred. I do not remember how we parted that evening, or whether we even saw each other after dinner was over. But from that hour forth, Mary, by insensible degrees, resumed her old predominance in my mind. I woke up in the night and thought about her, and next day I found myself thinking of her, remembering things out of the past, and recalling and examining every detail of the overnight encounter. How cold and ineffective we had been, both of us! We had been like people resuming a disused and partially forgotten language. Had she changed towards me? Did she indeed want to see me again, or was that invitation a mere demonstration of how entirely unimportant seeing me or not seeing me had become. Then I would find myself thinking with the utmost particularity of her face. Had it changed at all? Was it altogether changed? I seemed to have forgotten everything and remembered everything. That peculiar slight thickness of her eyelids that gave her eyes their tenderness, that light firmness of her lips. Of course she would want to talk to me, as now I perceived I wanted to talk to her. Was I in love with her still? It seemed to me then that I was not. It had not been that hesitating fierceness, that pride and demand and doubt, which is passionate love, that had made all my sensations strange to me as I sat beside her. It had been something larger and finer, something great and embracing, a return to fellowship. 
here beside me, veiled from me only by our transient embarrassment and the tarnish of separation and silences, was the one person who had ever broken down the crust of shy insincerity, which is so incurably my characteristic, and talked intimately of the inmost things of life to me. I discovered now for the first time how intense had been my loneliness for the past five years. I discovered now that through all those years I had been hungry for such talk as Mary alone could give me. My mind was filled with talk, filled with things I desired to say to her. That chaos began to take on a multitudinous expression at the touch of her spirit. I began to imagine conversations with her, to prepare reports for her, of those new worlds of sensation and activity I had discovered since that boyish parting. But when at last that talk came, it was altogether different from any of those I had invented. She wrote to me when she came down into Surrey, and I walked over to Marden's the next afternoon. I found her in her own sitting-room, a beautiful characteristic apartment, with tall French windows hung with blue curtains, a large writing-desk, and a great litter of books. The room gave upon a broad sunlit terrace, with a balustrading of yellowish stone, on which there stood great oleanders. Beyond was a flower-garden, and then the dark shadows of cypresses. She was standing as I came in to her, as though she had seen me coming across the lawns, and had been awaiting my entrance. "'I thought you might come to-day,' she said, and told the man-servant to deny her to other callers. Again she produced that queer effect of being at once altogether the same, and altogether different from the Mary I had known. "'Justin,' she said, "'is in Paris. He comes back on Friday.' I saw then that the change lay in her bearing, that for the easy confidence of the girl she had now the deliberate dignity and control of a married woman, a very splendidly and spaciously married woman. Her manner had been purged of impulse. Since we had met, she had stood the mistress of great houses, and had dealt with thousands of people. "'You walked over to me?' "'I walked,' I said. "'It is nearly a straight path. You know it?' "'You came over the heather beyond our pine-wood,' she confirmed. "'And then, I think, we talked some polite unrealities, "'about Surrey scenery and the weather. "'It was so formal that by a common impulse "'we let the topic suddenly die. "'We stood through a pause, a hesitation. "'Were we indeed to go on at that altitude of cold civility?' "'She turned to the window.' as if the view was to serve again. "'Sit down,' she said, and dropped into a chair against the light, looking away from me across the wide green space of afternoon sunshine. I sat down on the little sofa, at a loss also. "'And so,' she said, turning her face to me suddenly, "'you come back into my life.' and I was amazed to see that the brightness of her eyes was tears. We've lived five years. 
you, I said clumsily, have done all sorts of things. I hear of you, patronizing young artists, organizing experiments in village education. Yes, she said, I've done all sorts of things. One has to, forced unreal things for the most part. You, I expect, have done all sorts of things also, but yours have been real things. All things, I remarked sententiously, are real, and all of them a little unreal. South Africa has been wonderful, and now it is all over, one doubts if it really happened, like that incredulous mood after a storm of passion. You've come back for good? For good. I want to do things in England. Politics? If I can get into that. Again a pause. There came the characteristic moment of deliberation that I remembered so well. I never meant you, she said, to go away. You could have written. You never answered the notes I sent. I was frantic, I said, with loss and jealousy. I wanted to forget. And you forgot? I did my best. I did my best, said Mary. And now, have you forgotten? Nothing. Nor I. I thought I had. Until I saw you again. I've thought of you endlessly. I've wanted to talk to you. We had a way of talking together. But you went away. You turned your back as though all that was nothing, not worth having. You... you drove home my marriage, Stephen. You made me know what a thing of sex a woman is to a man, and how little else. She paused. You see, I said slowly, you had made me, as people say, in love with you. I don't know if you remember everything. She looked me in the eyes for a moment. I hadn't been fair, she said, with an abrupt abandonment of accusation. But you know, Stephen, that night, I meant to explain. And afterwards, things sometimes go as one hasn't expected them to go, even the things one has planned to say. I suppose I treated you disgustingly. I protested. Yes, she said, I treated you as I did, and I thought you would stand it. I knew, I knew then, as well as you do now, that male to my female you wouldn't stand it, but somehow I thought there were other things, things that could override that. Not, I said, for a boy of one and twenty. But in a man of twenty-six? I weighed the question. Things are different, I said, and then, yes. Anyhow, now, if I may come back penitent, to a friendship. We looked at one another gravely. Faintly in our ears sounded the music of past and distant things. We pretended to hear nothing of that tried honestly to hear nothing of it. I had not remembered how steadfast and quiet her face could be. 
Yes, she said, a friendship. I've always had you in my mind, Stephen, she said. When I saw I couldn't marry you, it seemed to me I had better marry and be free of any further hope. I thought we could get over that. Let's get it over, I thought. Now, at any rate, we have got over that. Her eyes verified her words a little doubtfully. And we can talk, and you can tell me of your life, and the things you want to do that make life worth living. Oh, life has been stupid without you, Stephen, large and expensive and aimless. Tell me of your politics. They say, Justin told me, you think of Parliament? I want to do that. I have been thinking. In fact, I am going to stand. I found myself hesitating on the verge of phrases in the quality of a review article. It was too unreal for her presence. And yet it was this she seemed to want from me. This, I said, is a phase of great opportunities. The war has stirred the empire to a sense of itself, to a sense of what it might be. Of course this tariff reform row is a squalid nuisance. It may kill out all the fine spirit again before anything is done. Everything will become a haggle, a chaffering of figures. All the more reason why we should try and save things from the commercial traveller. If the empire is anything at all, it is something infinitely more than a combination in restraint of trade. Yes, she said, and you want to take that line, the high line. If one does not take the high line, I said, what does one go into politics for? Stephen, she smiled, you haven't lost a sort of simplicity. People go into politics because it looks important, because other people go into politics, because they can get titles and a sense of influence and other things. And then there are quarrels, old grudges to serve. These are roughnesses of the surface. Old Stephen, she cried, with the note of a mother, they will worry you in politics. I laughed. Perhaps I'm not altogether so simple. Oh, you'll get through. You have a way of going on. But I shall have to watch over you. I see I shall have to watch over you. Tell me of the things you mean to do. Where are you standing? I began to tell her a little disjointedly of the probabilities of my Yorkshire constituency. End of chapter 6, parts 1 to 5